Welcome to Cake the Podcast, the podcast about cake from State Library of Queensland. This is the show that unravels the sweet and not-so-sweet stories behind our favourite desserts to understand how we got here. I'm Caitlin Sorry, and in today's episode, we're using butter and sugar to make the world a better place. From the community cookbooks that raise millions and the cakes that were sent into war zones to helping neurodivergent children learn to mindfully bake, we'll hear the fascinating stories behind the people who inspired us to bake a difference. Using cakes to raise money for charity isn't a new idea, and some of the recipe books that came out of them led a woman's revolution across Australia. The clues these books give you about how they've been used and how they've been loved by the people who've owned them is, you know, is just fascinating. This is Liz Harfel, food historian and author of many books, including Try, Tested and True, Treasured Recipes and Untold Stories from Australian Community Cookbooks. There are cocoa stains and butter stains on the favourite recipes. I was looking at a book from the 1960s that had a pavlova recipe and there was a piece of meringue stuck to the page. But it wasn't just the recipes marked by buttery fingers that got Liz interested in these kind of cookbooks. After rummaging through her grandmother's collections, she realised there was a wealth of knowledge in their pages. My grandmother, Amy, who was a very talented Baker had two kinds of books in her collection, which I've got. Some of them are handwritten exercise books. So, for example, there's a tractor catalogue that she used as a scrapbook and pasted recipes on top of the technical descriptions of the latest models of tractors. (laughs) And then there were community cookbooks that she obviously bought to support a, a cause. Community cookbooks are recipe books that were often printed by organisations like the Red Cross or the CWA, featuring local recipes. These cookbooks are usually bound by hand. You can feel the love in them. So the staples might be a bit wonky and the covers range hugely in quality and design. But these humble publications have played an important role, raising money for all kinds of causes, literally anything you can think of. Anything and everything, from political parties, (laughs) through to sports teams, social causes, the disadvantaged wartime efforts. It's just extraordinary the diversity of causes these books have supported. And there's no way of calculating it, but collectively, surely they must have raised millions of dollars over the years for worthy causes of some sort. And because these books are created by the community, it gives the owner a special kind of relationship with the pages. It's something Liz first noticed with her grandmother's community cookbook collection. Since she died, her her son, who was a bachelor and a fine cook, used it also like a scrapbook. So it's now twice as thick as it was originally because they've... They've stapled and pasted in additional recipes, written notes next to recipes to add their layer of knowledge to what's there. It's a living thing, this book, which is one of the reasons I love it. This secret layer of recipe knowledge sent Liz down a rabbit hole, collecting and reading over a thousand community cookbooks. I spent a lot of time in libraries looking at books from the... 1900s through to the 1980s, and I barely scratched the surface. There'd be many thousands more out there. And that made her wonder, who was the first to do it in Australia? The credit often goes to a book published by the Presbyterian Women's 
Mission Union. But there is another little book that remains a bit of a mystery and the only known copy has no date in it. So I had to do some detective work about the woman who produced it. Liz discovered the author lived in a small community in Queensland for only a few years. I suspect her little book, A Voice from the Bush, could well have been the first printed community cookbook in Australia, probably somewhere in the 1890s, but potentially even as early as the 1880s. So we're talking something like 150 years of tradition. Some of these cookbooks have set publishing records, selling over half a million books, and have been reprinted and updated for over 100 years. A couple of these heavy hitters come from Queensland, like the CWA Bundaberg Cookbook. I love the Bundaberg cookbook. Here's another book that's punched way above its weight. It came out in 1928 and it's still in print and it's sold something like 130,000 copies, which is extraordinary. And its biggest claim to fame is a cake called the Bert Hinkler cake. If Bert Hinkler's name sounds familiar, it's because his name is on a bunch of things, like parks and planes and even the federal electorate of, you guessed it, Hinkler. Bert Hinkler was a famous aviator. He was the first person to fly solo from London to Australia, and he achieved that in 1928, and he was a Bundaberg boy. Hinkler was a kid when he became obsessed with flying. This was the era when aviation was the exciting frontier. He learnt mechanics by correspondence and designed his own glider based on watching Ibis flying. Yes, the Binchuk inspired one of our greatest aviators to take flight. He signed up for the Air Force during World War I and got relegated to one of the most dangerous gigs, a gunner. Basically hanging from the underside of the plane and hoping not to get shot to smithereens by the enemy. While risking life and limb for country and showcasing some bush ingenuity, Hinkler invents a dual control system so the gunner could fly if the pilot got taken out. Somehow, he survives World War I, but the adrenaline junkie in him isn't satisfied, and he plans his biggest challenge yet, flying solo from England to Australia. As a solo person in the plane, he couldn't take a navigator with him. He would have had to work out the navigation himself. We're talking 1928. He's flying a dinky little plane over the Indian Ocean. There's no electronic navigation system. It's all paper and compass. The previous record was 28 days. Hinkler slashes that almost in half. Although the official record ended when he landed in Darwin, about 15 and a half days after he took off, for him, it didn't end until he got home to Bundaberg. So he flew on. And when he got to Bundaberg, he discovered something like 20,000 people waiting for him on the town racecourse. Hinkler was a national hero, and his hometown couldn't have been prouder. They mobbed the plane, basically, and dragged him out of it, put him on their shoulders and carried him off. And the town celebrated for days. In fact, the nation celebrated for days. He was like a superstar, a rock star. And what do rock stars get? This special treatment from the CWA... They held a huge party for him. About 300 women went along and Bert was a guest of honour, but he wasn't the main guest of honour. The main guest of honour was his mother, Frances, who the CWA wanted to pay tribute to because of all the torment and worry her son had put her through, which is very CWA, that sort of looking after the sisterhood. And to mark the occasion, the Bundaberg CWA created a special dessert called 
the Hinkler cake. I love it. It's actually one of my favourite cakes. It's a type of cake that was actually quite popular in that period, but we hardly see anymore. So it's a two-tiered cake and the bottom mixture is a little denser than the top and then you put a spread of dried fruit and then there's a lemon icing on top. Almost like the slab cakes that my mum used to make on the farm or that you make for shearers in that it's you can make a big cake in a roasting dish or something like that. It's not very high, but it's pretty economical. And, you know, it comes from an era when people did need to stretch <laughs> things a bit further. Pretty quickly, the Bert Hinkler cake made its way into the Bundaberg Community Cookbook. It appeared in the Bundaberg Branch Cookery Book to raise money for a boys' hostel to provide accommodation to kids from the bush coming into Bundaberg for high school. And Bert officially opens that you know, during that year. But the Bundaberg Cookery Book didn't just pay for a hostel, it also helped pay for... The idea of having a public toilet is something we don't remark upon now, but before the CWA came along, public toilets for women were virtually unheard of. Back in the day, if you were in town and needed the loo, you'd have to hope you could hold it. Unless you could afford to rent a room at the local hotel, you wouldn't be able to use a shared bathroom because women weren't allowed into the front bar. And this had a tremendous impact on the mobility and freedom of women. So a lot of CWA branches within weeks of being formed made that a primary focus. And sometimes these CWA lady loos were a lot more than your classic council-run bog hole. They were way more than public toilets. They quite often included lounges, kitchens, places they could have a cup of tea, even a room where they could sleep overnight if they couldn't get back to their farms, places for the children to play and keep occupied while they're in town on errands. They weren't just toilets, they were places to hang out. If they had a lounge or a veranda, women got to sit down and talk with other women who they might not see very often at all. I mean, a lot of farm women were leading pretty isolated existences. Bundaberg's was so popular that in 1928, 9,000 visitors used the Bundy Dunny, and they were ready for an upgrade. So the Bert Hinkler Cake and the Bundaberg CWA Cookbook raised money for a revamp. They opened a bigger, newer, flasher <laughs> waiting room and sort of meeting rooms in Bundaberg, and it helped raise thousands of pounds towards that. It turns out community cookbooks helped fund CWA crappers all over the country because women weren't going to wait around for men to get it done. You know, men probably didn't have too high an opinion of women's ability to manage finance. (laughs) But um, organisations like the CWA and the Red Cross were powerhouses for raising money and channelling it to where it was needed. So it was a revolutionary act, strange as it may seem today, but it was. Community cookbooks are still raising money to this day. When the 2011 floods drowned most of Queensland, they were the worst we'd seen in 40 years. 33 people lost their lives, and many of the survivors lost everything they had to mould and mud. Those on higher ground rallied to create what would become known as the Mud Army, going into battle with the elements, helping people excavate the mud and ruined items from their homes. And one of those soldiers was Alison Alexander. The thing that struck me was not only all the books that were being thrown at, but all the cookbooks. And those people had no resource left from which to cook. Alison Alexander is a food consultant and foodie. Seeing all those ruined recipe books covered in mud and dumped on the curb 
gave her an idea. I took the idea to the ABC where I do a food program and I said, what about if we put a call out to the listeners to say, would you like to send in one of your favourite recipes so that we could put a collection of recipes together in a book that might help those people who've lost, you know, favourite possessions. And so that's what it did. So she gathered together the best recipes submitted and the result became a book. The title, A Generous Helping, I really liked that title. I didn't give it to it, the publishers did, but it was a perfect example of what it was, asking people to help out. Come floods and fires, that's what we do. All the money went to flood victims and it was very successful. And there are some great cakes in there with some great names. The next best thing to Robert Redford. Such a great name. Isn't it? Doesn't that name get you in? And you think, how can that be a cake? And like a Robert Redford movie, this cake is a hit. The introduction to it says, this is my and my friend's number one favourite. It's an adaption of a recipe passed on to me in New Guinea by a friend. Will you please bring Robert Redford is a constant request for potlucks and dinner parties. You know, it was a group of expat Australians living in New Guinea and this was the dessert they all wanted. But this dinner party favour is no cakewalk. It takes a bit to make the cake in that it's a number of different layers. We got a base of some crushed shortbread biscuits, the cream cheese layer, a chocolate layer, and then it's finished off with lashings of cream. So what's not to like about it? Oh my gosh, it sounds so good. Have you had it? It is. I have made it a couple of times. It's a spectacular cake because it looks so good for a start. You know, and then, of course, you want to taste it. Well, it's named after Robert Redford, so... Can't be all bad, can it, for a good-looking bloke like that? Yeah. And with Christmas around the corner, Alison Alexander tells us she has another favourite in the collection that we absolutely need to try. This really is lovely, and I've made it countless times. H165. Hester's Boiled Fruitcake. It is a very simple, straightforward recipe, and it calls for four cups of mixed fruit, so you can put any, any dried mixed fruit you like in it. Although this fruitcake is a simple recipe, it comes with a special story. Sometimes, if you go away, what are the things you remember from home? Food is definitely one of them. The woman who submitted it, Shirley Graham, she was making this cake for her husband when he was fighting in Vietnam. Now, that goes back to 1968, so it's certainly got a lot of history in it. Shirley was sending a slice of home to her husband on the front line and she continued that tradition many years later. Her eldest son went into the army and was serving in the Middle East and she was making this same cake still then and sending it to him. There's a long history of Australians sending fruitcakes into war zones going back to World War I. The Red Cross sent 25,000 fruitcakes by boat to Australian troops based in Egypt during the Christmas of 1918. Move over Anzac bickies. And it wasn't just soldiers getting sweet treats. In World War II, during severe rationing and food shortages, the CWA sent fruitcakes to British citizens. Alison tells us the main reason fruitcake is such a popular choice for long-distance travel is they keep for at least 12 months, but you've got to do it right. Cool, dark, dry. There's a three words that go with keeping a fruitcake. 
and I like to keep it towards the centre of the house, not in a cupboard that's on the outside walls because they're going to go up and down in temperature the most. Alison has the perfect spot. My linen cupboard smells fabulous <laughs> because I wrap them in big, thick toweling and then I just store them on one of the shelves there and they just do their thing slowly. So if you want to send your love to those half a world away, whether they're in Egypt, Vietnam or Iraq, Hester's World Fruitcake from Shirley Graham might be your answer. That's the connection of cake. Cake and family, cake and community, I think is just so lovely that she was able to send her compassion, her love, in the form of a cake to somebody. How nice is that? From sending cakes into war zones to finding zen in the kitchen, our next sugar-powered changemaker went from competing on a Netflix dessert show to helping children find focus through mindful baking. But before cakes changed her life, she made a living 10,000 feet in the air as a flight attendant. It was kind of like a performance every time, you know, I got in the air and I did my little safety demo and everything, and then I would cake on the side. This is Pearly Sprinkles. She's wearing oversized glasses, red lipstick and iced Vovo earrings. We're meeting her in her home in Brisbane, and she tells us that while she loved flying, it started to take a back seat to her true passion. There's like this part on the flight when it's takeoff and you're meant to be thinking about, you know, your safety procedures and what you would do if the plane suddenly crashed. But I was thinking about cake. While her brain was supposed to be following the rules, Pearlie's imagination was concocting all sorts of crazy and colourful cakes. So fast forward a bit, and I'm thinking about cake more than I'm thinking about flying. When I got an ad for a dessert show, unspecified, in my Facebook. And you were like, a dessert show? Uh, tell me more. Yes, yes. Pearlie loved baking cakes, but she didn't consider herself a chef. Everyone always said to me, you should go master chef. And I'm like, I am... I'm not a, a big cook, okay? Like, I can create you a cake that looks like a chicken, but I can't debone and, like, butcher a chicken. So MasterChef is not for me. So I saw this and I was like, oh, this is perfect. So I applied for the show. She sent in a video and after surviving round after round of auditions, finally the mystery was revealed. The show would star the MasterChef Patissier of Pain himself, Adriano Zumbo. They called me up and they said... You've got it. You're going to be on the show. And it's actually Zumbo's Justice at season two. And it's going to be on Netflix. Holy crap. And then I started freaking out. Pearly immediately started to think about how it could all go wrong. I haven't done jellies, custards, tempering chocolate, all the really hard stuff. So at that point I was like, oh, imposter syndrome. Holy crap. <laughs> like they've made a massive mistake. <laughs> uh, that makes for great TV. Oh, yeah, exactly. Pearly may not have known how to temper chocolate, but the producers were taken with her. I might not be the most skilled patisserie chef out there, but I can talk to a camera and make things, and, and a lot of people can't do that, you know. I'm like uh, Liam, Liam Nielsen, is it? When I, you know, I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Yeah, 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 Liam Neeson. You know, but like instead of you know, killing people, it's, it's making cakes. <laughs> Although, <laughs> never say never. Filming Zumbo's Just Desserts was everything she could have hoped for. I was having the time of my life. I felt like I was walking onto the set of, like, Sesame Street. It was magical. It was really, really magical. But we all know 
magic isn't real. The cooking part, like the pressure is still real, but it, it's reality TV. It's not really real because, you know, on the show they're trying to make us competitive and they're like, you know, what do you really think about this person? And I'm like, oh, they're so wonderful. And they're like, yeah, but make it mean. I'm like, yeah, and I start slagging them off. That's so funny. It's like, no, <laughs> but make it mean. But make it mean because, you know, it's still TV. But I, I was thinking like, oh, God, I could never be a villain. I'm like sunshine. I mean, your name's literally Pearly Sprinkles. <laughs> it really is. Being on TV had opened up a whole new world for Pearlie, but it might have been the second most important thing to happen. That was actually where Pearlie Sprinkles was born. So basically what happened was during filming, the wonderful Zach actually said, you're literally like Sprinkles, you're Pearlie Sprinkles. And that was kind of where it began. That was sort of where like the development of me as a person came together with the mental health side of things. For as long as she could remember, Pearlie had struggled with her mental health. I used to have panic attacks and nightmares and things when I was little. Never really um, knew anything about it until I was 15 when I was hospitalised um, for a good portion of um, the year, my year 11. That was when I was diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder. It was right in the 2000s when pop culture was horrific for one's self-esteem. Everything was like low-rise jeans and... Oh, my gosh, and the bobblehead thing. You know, it was a very toxic time. She struggled with anorexia and body dysmorphia, but the anxiety disorder has been a constant throughout her life. For me, having general anxiety disorder... You know, I, I, I pretty much battle on a daily basis with like my brain just being native bias and being like, you know, oh, you're not good enough. Nobody likes you and all these things. It's like for someone who's so positive, <laughs> your internal voice is really mean. It is. I am. I am so mean to myself. So I, I have to actively work on being really kind to myself, um, especially now that I'm a mum. So she decided it was time to take charge of her mental health. And so I started going on this journey of who am I and what is it that I want to do? And I thought to myself, I have trouble living in a world where I have my generalised anxiety disorder. So how do I make it better for myself? And how do I make it better for other people? I want to do something like with my anxiety and with the skills that I have. And that was cake. She thought back to when times were tough and how cake helped her live in the present. So for context, mindfulness, it grounds you in your body and it helps focus your mind. You're just working on what you're working on in the moment, no judgment. You're not caught up in the past or thinking about the future. You're just focusing on the present. She calls it mindful baking. Baking cakes, one ingredient, one step at a time. And she wanted to share it with the next generation. For someone who hasn't really heard the term mindful baking before, like how do you actually teach it to kids? I am a lived experience advocate. I don't have like a research background, but I do do a lot of work with people who do. I started working with a psychologist and we actually developed a school program last year in a school here in Brisbane where we worked with neurodivergent kids. And I came in in like an afternoon and I would, I would bring cookies and we would work with fondant because like fondant is basically sugar dough. It's kind of like edible Play-Doh and it's a really great way to work with your hands. And so we started doing that with kids. Using sugar, Pearlie had the kids' full attention. 
our focus was on the term focus. In that session when we were working with sugar dough and helping like show them how to roll out fondant and how to mix colours in the fondant, they're sort of learning how to do mindful baking without saying like, you're going to bake mindfully. It's kind of like a skill that you're learning without realising that you're doing it. So how do we apply that to class? Like if you're having a bit of trouble with a math problem and you're scattered, how do you focus on, okay, step one of the math problem, step two. So for me, like it's really just about teaching those skills to to kids while their brains are still developing so that they learn that and then they take it into their adult lives rather than having to get to their adult lives to realise, hey, this works for me. And baking isn't the only way Pearly wants to help kids stay in a good headspace. At the height of COVID, when everyone was making sourdough like their life depended on it, Pearly had an epiphany. Exercise is really important for me, for my mental health. So I'm running along and I'm wearing my Apple Watch. And as I'm running, it kind of reminds me to breathe and it kind of like vibrates almost in a way, like deep breaths. So it encourages you to breathe alongside the watch, which helps you regulate your breathing. Which is a great way to calm your nervous system, especially if you're having a panic attack. So I thought to myself, hang on, is there anything like this for kids? Like this breathing thing? Surely I'm not the first person to think of this. I pelt home and Brantley, like my husband's just sitting on the couch, just chilling. And I just like pretty much scream like my life plan for world domination at him. Suddenly, all the pieces fell together. I am Pearly Sprinkles and there's this idea I have for something for kids that helps them regulate their breathing and it doesn't exist yet. So what is that? It's a doll called Pearly Sprinkles who is a baker who does mindful baking. But how would this doll help kids slow down and breathe? When you squeeze her... She deep breathes and she encourages whoever is holding on to her to regulate their breathing through deep breath. So she Googled how to make a toy, found a podcast that led her to a course and away she went. So from there, I created the Pelly Sprinkles doll. Should I describe her? Yeah, describe her. So she's like, she's a plushie. She is a plushie. Yeah, yeah. A plush comfort doll. She's nice and soft and squishable all over. She has gorgeous rainbow hair and bright, vibrant eyes. It's taken a lot to get to this point. Pearly worked with companies in Singapore and Shenzhen, and after three years of testing, Pearly Sprinkles the doll was born. You squeeze her hand and... Hi, I'm Pearly Sprinkles. Let's breathe together. One, two, three. Breathe with me. So this doll is actually me. It's me speaking. I totally recorded it in my closet. She has an American accent because I, I want to be able to make this accessible. And don't know if you can see. The little chest is going in and out. The chest is going in and out. So this is the mechanism inside her which does deep breathing. I'll give her a little hug. This is, this is the best way to experience her. That's yeah. really calming. Yeah. So Pearly finally has this prototype, but how does she get it onto shelves? For me, it's really going to be about just going directly to 
hospitals and clinics and pitching to them directly. It's really important to me to have it backed by like research and science. You know, it's parents, it's children, it's development, it's people's lives. I've got to do it right, no matter how many years that takes. And seeing how far Pearly has already come, we're sure that one day we'll see Pearly Sprinkles the toy on the shelves near you. Now, all that's left to do is to bake a cake. And for today's episode, we're going to make the Bundaberg CWA Bert Hinkler cake. But we'll do it mindfully. This recipe is a good one to take it slow with because, according to Liz Harfel, there's a bit to it. I make it in a huge slab tin and cut it up into squares. And it takes a little bit more effort than just a one-mix cake that you put in a tin of and ice because you're dealing with a couple of layers but honestly not that much more effort and it's worth it. There's no rules really with what kind of dried fruit you use so you can adapt that for your preferences. I'm going to stick with the original. Start by making the base, roll the dough into the cake pan, sprinkle some currants, raisins and dates and now for the lemon icing. Ta-da! It's a Bert Hinkler cake. Frankie, what do you reckon? Oh yeah, it's like a fig newton. With frosting. Mm. I would never hate to make that, but it's really good. JJ, what do you think? You got the hiccups, baby. Oh, yeah, by the way, the baby arrived. She's a little beauty. So, we're going to be taking a little Christmas break while we get used to the milk monster. Oh, sweetie. And we'll be back with the final two episodes of Cake the Podcast starting January 10th. That's right, New Year, New Cake. Cake the Podcast is a production of FNK Media for State Library of Queensland. And a huge thanks to everyone who's been loving and sharing the podcast. It really helps people find it. Happy holidays. Have a great Chrissy break. Eat all the cake and we'll see you in the new year.